Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Jeff Kageris with Cool Springs and Donaldson Eye Care. We've proudly served the Middle Tennessee community for the last 26 years, and I want you to know we really appreciate you. Having an annual comprehensive eye health and vision exam is so important to the health of your eyes. From signs of diabetes, glaucoma, and cataracts, we're looking for it all. Don't let another day go by. Schedule your annual eye health and vision exam at Cool Springs or Donaldson Eye Care. From the in-office studios of his eye care practices in Nashville, Tennessee, it's As I See It with Dr. Jeff Kegaris, your source for eye care education and receiving the type of patient relationship you deserve. It is time for a patient revolution. And now, your host, Dr. Jeff Kegaris. Welcome back. This week to As I See It, I'm Dr. Jeff Kegris coming to you from Franklin, Tennessee at Cool Springs Eye Care, representing Cool Springs and Donaldson Eye Care. Make sure to get your eyes checked. Eye health and vision are very important commodities, and they're precious, precious senses. It's as simple as having a comprehensive eye health and vision examination with your eye doctor, optometrist, or ophthalmologist, whoever you see. And if you don't have someone that you see, we're here for you at Cool Springs and Donaldson. Make sure to just go to our website, make an appointment online. But today, I'm continuing my discussions with our guest, retired two-star General H. Brent Baker. General Baker spoke to us last week on many of the topics highlighted in his book, Orders from the General, Leadership Advice from a Two-Star General. I highly recommend it. Uh, I've not only read it once, I've perused where I made notes again, and it is. I just would highly recommend it. It's a tremendous book. I know Rachel in our office uh, received a copy, and she's already commented that it's it's inspiring to her, and that's so. I'm, I'm giving you from the from the credibility standpoint, um, it's real. General Baker spent time in positions of leadership in the military, private sector, and as a husband and father. And today, I want to discuss more of his advice on being or becoming a great leader. So General Baker, again, thank you for your service to America and welcome back to As I See It. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here for for part two. This is really, really fun. So when we last spoke, we were discussing the importance of making decisions, particularly the challenge of making tough decisions. And you recommend in your book using a decision matrix as a tool. Is that something that could be applied for people as they're listening here? Can you describe that decision matrix a bit? I think a decision matrix is so important, especially when you're, you're making a tough decision. Uh, I, I, we, we kind of do that in our mind to some degree. You know, we weigh pros and cons and things like that. But th- this is a more rigid recommendation. And what I mean by that is like actually sitting down and, and doing a pros and cons list. Or like when I was in the military, uh, we, we have a lot of decisions we have to make about punishment for individuals, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I, I would, so I would always get a report and they would say, you know, Johnny did X, Y, Z. And I was always left with, well, did, did he or she really do that? And I would just make up a, a simple decision matrix that said, this person, this is a hundred percent. They did it. They likely could have done it. Uh, there's no way to prove if they did it. Most likely they didn't do it. And I would kind of lay out the case in, in that pattern. And it was just amazing at how it really helped formulate my decision going forward. And uh, even a couple of times I had su- superior officers or senior officers would call me and say, Brent, why, how, why did you make that decision? And I would walk them through uh, 
that my decision matrix. And quite frankly, they would usually come away saying something like, Ooh, I didn't really think about that. Or you really have laid this out in a logical way. So, so my, my, my thought, and I bring this out in the mm-hmm. book is I, I think a decision matrix, uh, where you actually write it down is very, very helpful when you have these tough decisions. Is that sometimes reinforce and sometimes dispel what your abdominal gut feel computer <laughs> comes I, up with? I, I think it can. Uh, you make know, it and, more and objective? Get, exactly. I, and I, I think a lot of times you do have this gut instinct, but when you use a decision matrix to kind of, again, just to lay it out where you can look at it, revisit it, 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 may may it may change your gut instinct feeling or what it may do is confirm what you felt all along and then i think once you have your gut feeling and you've got a decision matrix you've laid that out i think it it's really helps you make a decision going forward have have you found that to be helpful in counseling or mentoring coaching other people that come to you other leaders that may may come to you for advice or they want you to make the decision but you help them with their own decision matrix so they can make that decision. I, I think it's very helpful. And matter of fact, that's exactly what I do. It is part of mentoring. If someone comes to me and with an important decision they're trying to make, I would advise them the exact same thing. I would say, trust your instincts, but I would also say, lay this out in a logical decision matrix sequence. And, and then when at the end of the day, when you're done with that, I, I think you'll be, you'll feel very good about the decision that you've made in this case. And I I think when you do that, that is really helping mentor your folks about making tough decisions. Mm -hmm. Is there a process that you ever go through in evaluating many of the decisions that you've made? Was that a good decision? Was it not a good decision? Is there a formal process of doing that? Or is that just kind of a, sometime you got to take that that time to reflect and and say, how did I make that decision? Was it a good one? What did I learn from it? I, I do. I, I think we all, as humans, you do that. Um, I, I bring out in the book of one case where an individual, I had a very tough decision to make about one of my uh, employees uh, had been accused of very serious you know, drug-related crime. And and uh, it would have been very easy just to take the very simple, just refer it to the staff judge advocate, the legal side, and it would have kind of been out of my hands. But I again, using the decision matrix and everything I knew, my gut instinct, knowing the person, I decided not to do anything around punishment. And I was very criticized at the time. I mean, people were they were really questioning my leadership ability. And then later uh, down the road, I found out the individual actually was innocent mm-hmm. and it was kind of a trumped up charge had been made against this person. And, and so I felt really good. I had done the right thing. So my, my point is, I think you always go and, and they don't always end with such confirmation, right. but I do think as humans, you, you go back later and you say, did I make the right decision? And using some tools like a decision matrix can really help solidify, at least in your mind, why you, why you did what you did. Yeah. I think if we, we've all probably had situations in the past where we made a little quicker decision because we were certain this was the, the way it was only to find out maybe that was a little bit too rash and we didn't have all the facts. And then we say, next time, I'm going to be a little more methodical about this process. Right? 100%, 100%. So, so we're trying to save people from probably doing, I don't know about you, but, but things I've done in the past sure. where, I, where I acted a little too quickly. And maybe it's because somebody's coming going, oh, you know, they're really emotional right. and they're charged up about this is definitely the way it is. And you're going... Hang on a second. Let's let's think through this. You know, and I don't want to think through it. It's the way it is. Right? You know, you're, you're you're exactly right, and that's why a decision matrix, it, just as a tool, will help kind of slow that down, uh-huh. take some of the emotion out of it. 
Uh, to, to me, it's just, it's really a good way to, to make decisions. There's a quote in your book where you say it should be everyone's goal when taking a new position or job to make that job or organization better, much better. Um, I agree. In fact, I've always held in high regard. There was a Baldridge award winner, ADAC, uh, who emphasized what they called the dual nature of work. And that is not only do your job well, but make the, make the business better. How have you improved it? In fact, all of their reviews were, this is how you're doing in your job. But if you haven't made it better, you have not accomplished really your goals. So um, what do you think aspiring leaders should do or not do to accomplish the work, but also improving the job? Well, I, to, to me, that's one of the basic cornerstones of leadership is to make your your job, whatever your job is, your organization, to make it better. And, and I say, and like I said in the book, much better. And one thing that's always bothered me is what I call a potted plant. It's somebody that comes in and they <laughs> just, they don't rock the boat. They just kind of do the basic job and, uh, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not going to, sabotage necessarily, but they're not going to really work hard to take it to the next level. And that, that that's where I think real leaders, they're the exact opposite. They're the ones that are out there. They're taking some risks. They're trying to make things better. Uh, things don't necessarily always go well. Uh, I used to tell, you know, some of the folks I worked for that I said, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm probably going to make mistakes, but if I make mistakes, they're going to be honest mistakes. And it's going to be because I'm trying to do something uh, to make this organization better. And I, to me, that's just a great philosophy for leaders and really all employees to have. Yeah, not waiting to be told to do something and then follow through, but being willing to take calculated risks or take initiative, really. Right. Right. And and having the confidence that, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is going to work well, but not always, and sometimes it doesn't. And if you're in an organization where you can't afford to make one mistake or you're out, then then probably in the wrong organization for, for a true leader, right? I, I agree. And I think the leader really sets that standard. Uh, that was one thing I always tried to do is, you know, I had, like, I call them guardrails. The organization knew where we were trying to go. And I let people operate with inside those guardrails. Uh, you know, I once worked for a boss that every, every decision I wanted to make, I had to go get permission to make. And I, I, I was always asking myself, I'm not sure why I'm needed in this situation, really. And so to, to me, inspiring leaders set the vision. They kind of set those guardrails, like integrity, honesty, things like that. And then they inspire their employees to operate uh, within those uh, that vision, if you will, and to really make things better. Now, within those guardrails, there it demands communication, a, a pretty good alignment and understanding of how much freedom do I have? And when do you, as my, if you will, in the military, my superior officer or right. in, the, in the private sector as my boss, right? Uh, when do you need to know something so that I ideally can understand when you want to be involved in a decision versus you're just going to trust that I'm going to make those. So the communication up and down and around, all very, very important. I liked how you stressed that it is a, new, a person that's new in a job reporting to a new boss, um, they have some certain communication responsibilities and understandings, don't they? Tell me about this. They do. I, I think it's so important. C- communication, uh, matter of fact, that you know, the chapter in the book is called Communicate, Communicate, Communicate. I probably could have wrote one more Communicate mm-hmm. because it's just so important. But a- as a new employee, I really feel it's your responsibility to learn how to best communicate with your boss. And, you know, in, in the military, I, you know, obviously I moved around a lot. I had different bosses, a lot of different general officer bosses. And I would just mention 
each one of them, they were completely different. You wouldn't think that you'd think they're all kind of cut out of the same mold, but it's not true. They were all completely different. And so I had to quickly learn how to best communicate with my boss. And if you don't do that, you're, you're, as the employee, you're going to suffer, your boss is going to suffer, and ultimately the organization uh, really suffers. And that's why I, I just stress so much in this writing about the importance of communicating and communicating in a language that works best for your boss. Is that a dual responsibility for the boss to say, hey, here's what, here's what I need, um, but also, because I think a lot of people wait for that. You know, well, Brent, this is the way I want you to talk to me, or this way I want you to report to me, and we're going to have this meeting, or well, just blah, blah, blah. But it's really dual, the dual nature responsibility is uh, I should be coming to you if you're my boss and saying, I want to know, right? How do you want me to communicate with you? Are you one that wants a report each week? Are you wanted it, you want it in writing? Do you want me to pass by your door and say, hey, just remember that topic? And you know, I work really well with, uh, with a little bit of a heads up. You know, I like to have the meetings, but... Um, but I don't need, you know, six pages of an email to, I don't have time to read through all that stuff, but I like going, Hey, remember we were working on this. I'm in charge of it. Things are going well. Just keeping you updated, man, that, that, that is, it's like, it can move it off my to-do list, right? It, I know exactly somebody's in right. charge, but that may be me. Other people are going to be a little bit different in what they want. I, I think it is a dual responsibility. And as, as I would go into a new organization, I would kind of tell my group how I like to communicate. So I, I think that's important. It's also important, as I mentioned earlier, you know, for the employee to to quickly learn how to best communicate with, with the boss. And so to, I think you're exactly right. I think it's a dual responsibility, but ultimately the employee, I think it, it really has to be able to do that r- really quickly. And that's mm-hmm. one that going into a new organization, that's one of the first things I would try to learn is how my boss likes to communicate uh, and so, again, I, I think that's really important. And, and one thing I draw out in the book, it, it's almost like the language of love. There was a book written sure, you, know, you have to sure. know how to communicate with your mm-hmm. significant other in ways that are important to them. And it's to me, I, I, I liken the communication to that. And just, just like you mentioned, like some people like email, some people want you to come by their office, some people want you to call them. You just have to really understand how to best communicate with your team. Yeah. Our director of training and culture at just at the strategic review that you spoke at in uh, March of this year at, at cool Springs and Donaldson um, did the love languages of business. And so that we would all, and then listed out who wanted this and who appreciated more, you know, gifts on the desk <laughs> or, or doing a job for them acts of service versus uh, you know, just uh, spending time and, and all of, that's, that's very important for us. I almost felt like, uh, we need to have something kind of on everybody's name tag because, you know, when you have 50-some or more people or you could be an organization with 500, you don't really know. But if I could look really quickly and just see two little initials and know that what you really want is spending time versus you want an act of service, those things would be valuable. You know, the, very, the very tools valuable. to remind yes. uh, that we're all – there's no right or wrong, but it's our job to understand right. those type of things. Um, some people – in my career, I've run across that will come and want to be counseled and they'll say, hey, um, if you put me in that position, man, then I'll really do that. But until then, or if, if, if I'm paid more money, then I'll do that job. Uh, and to me, that's the equivalent, really, even if they're just saying, if, if, you know, I'll do that once, once I'm there. That's like saying, oh, well, I'll only do it if I'm going to make more money. But I believe that that's really selfish and short-sighted, and I care we call that myopic. Um, <laughs> 
because it ultimately leads to fewer opportunities. And the person may never know why, but it's, it's that person that, that kind of goes, I never get asked for that job. How come they passed me up? That type of right. thing. Whereas we talked in the uh, last week about Sergeant Gill, who just came in, did the job, um, actually positively influenced you. Didn't, didn't come to you and say, hey, by the way, here's what I'll do if uh, you give me responsibility. He just went out and immersed himself and, and proved himself authentically by what he did, not what he said he would do if you, if you gave him another star, right? Or exactly. another stray. So uh, how, how do you counsel people like that? When, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, geez, General Baker, I can really, uh, you know, if, if I'm in that, if, if you put me in that position, paid me more, then you'd really see me perform. Right. Well, I, I tell you that, that would be a flag for me, quite frankly, if somebody came to, to, to do that. And, and I have had that happen. You know, the, the military, I think, has one uh, part of our culture that's very important, and I think is, is we talk about transitory. It could be in any leadership or any career field, but but that's is like we promote on your ability to, to perform at the next level, not the level that you're in, because we kind of expect you to perform at that level. But we, we're looking for promotion at the next level. And so, what I've always told folks: when you're in a job, don't just look at what you're doing today. Uh, what your responsibilities are, but try to grow into the the, the future job that you want. Um, it, 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 the old saying from acting is, you know, there are no small parts, only small actors. I, I kind of feel the same way. Mm-hmm. I really believe if you're in a position and you're, you're doing a really a good job, you're looking how you can serve, you know, serve your boss, serve others, make your job better. People will recognize you and they'll say, Hey, that person is ready for more increased responsibility. To me, that's how that should work. So in your book, Orders from the General, Leadership Advice from a Two-Star General, you also challenged people to take on the tough responsibilities. You took some positions in your career that a lot of people would say, that, uh, that's not real cushy, that's not enviable, that's, that might be dead end, I don't want to go there. But, but you, you had the confidence or the, the chutzpah to, be, to, to take it on, right? I, I, I did. And yeah. uh, you know, my mom used to tell me when I was young, you know, bloom where you're planted. Mm-hmm. And so I always had that in my mind. And I, I really did work to take tough jobs. And, and what I mean by that, you know, a great example, I had just moved to Hawaii. I was on a staff job. I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I'm going to be here three years. And my boss came in. I, I'd literally been there about a week and said, hey, there's a commander position open up in Isleson, Alaska, which is in Fairbanks, <laughs> the 60 below zero you know, base. Yeah, yeah. And he said, hey, would you want to be the commander there? And I said, sure. I never even skipped a beat uh, because, you know, commander was a the next job I needed to right. do. And that's, that's just an example that if there was an opportunity, a tough job, a tough position. I, I took it because somebody had the confidence to offer that position. And did you think you were ready for it at that time? How about that? When somebody says they, they almost maybe have a little bit of that imposter syndrome where they go, geez, I want that. But, and, and I'm telling everybody else that I'm ready for it, but inside, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for that. What would you, what would you say to somebody like that? Well, I, I, I think you always have you always question that, and I, I think that's a good thing to make sure you're you're doing a self evaluation, which we talked a lot about mm-hmm. before. But you know, another part I bring out in, in my book about is 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 learn your job, grow in that job, and then move. And and I think that helps prepare you for those levels of increased responsibilities. And a, a lot of folks get very comfortable in a particular job. And if you really are wanting career growth, it wants, to me, once you get comfortable, really comfortable in that job, it's probably time to think about doing something else. And it, to, to me, if you have that mindset 
then as these opportunities come up, you will be prepared. And just, just one example, when I was, uh, my last job in the Air Force, I was the vice commander of Air Force Material Command, which is the largest command in the Air Force responsible for all acquisition sustainment of every weapon system. And when they offered me that job, I thought, am I, am I ready for that job? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, a, you right. know amazing job. And after I was in the job for about you know three or four months, I realized I was perfect for that job. I had done everything required throughout my career to make myself perfect for that position. And so it didn't just, I mean, it happened a little bit by chance, but I had prepared myself to make sure I was ready. Now, what if you got into that job and you, and you thought you were somewhat ready and you got into it and you went, man, this is just not, not in my wheelhouse. Well, because we all maybe run into some situations like that. What, what do you do at that point? You say, man, I need, I need to train myself. I need to dig in and, and, and learn, learn this skill that's maybe not as natural to me. Or do you say, I need to move to something that, that more fits my wheelhouse. I, I think you can learn the job. Uh, and, and that's where, like in my case, I would really rely on my team, mm-hmm. my staff. Uh, I, I think being open and honest, if you get into this job and it, you, you're not maybe perfect for it at the beginning, I, I think being open, you tell your team, hey, I need some help. I don't really fully understand this. Can you help get up to speed? Now, I, again, there are cases where maybe you get into a job that's just completely over your head. You're not going to be able to survive it. Uh, and unfortunately, if that happens, you're probably going to have to move. But I think in most cases, if, if you've prepared well and you've done that self-evaluation and you've got a good team to support you, they, they can help train you and get you up to speed. And, and being a leader, sometimes people feel like, oh, that means I need to know the most. I need to be the expert. But that's really not, not true in all positions. And in fact, the, the, the higher you go, you, you can't be the master of everything, can you? It's overwhelming. You, you really can't. I, and I agree 100%. I don't think you have to be the master of everything. You just have to know how to lead people, you know, manage resources. You have to know how to work with people. And quite frankly, I think it's really good when you're to, you kind of rely on your team mm-hmm. and they see you as human. That's also important as a leader. You, you never want to act like you know everything and you're above everybody. So I, I think relying on your team uh, it can actually be a rallying point. They say, hey, we, let's help the boss here. Let's help make him or her successful. So you've taken on many roles. And from your book, Orders from the General, um, Leadership Advice from a Two-Star General, that I'm talking with H. Brent Baker today, um, the higher you go, the more responsibility there is. You're frequently there are just an exponential number of little things that come up. And yet you need to be focused on big things, not solely big things, but certainly not all the minute detail that can be very overwhelming. How do you, how do you balance that? Well, I, I think you did a great job on setting that question up because in some ways you, you helped answer it because you're exactly right. You have to realize uh, as you go in higher positions, greater levels of responsibility, you're not going to be able to know to do everything. And, and a lot of people have trouble with that. They have trouble letting go. And I, I think you just have to realize, hey, I, I have to be focused on the strategic. I have to take care of my folks. I have to do the, the major things for this organization. And I'm going to rely on my team to help make sure some of those little things really get done. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that can be very difficult for like some people have really a controlling nature. That's very difficult to let go of, of that, but people have to realize that you just have to. Nick Saban always says uh, in football, trust the process. And you as an Alabama fan might add, uh, fix the process, not, 
not the issue, if right. you will, um, go a little earlier into that. The military is really known and respected for being very process-driven. Uh, it's evolved over the years. And many of our listeners run small businesses, maybe more entrepreneurial organizations. What's your advice for leaders about, if you will, process management and and do all you can to not mention Roll Tide too many times. Okay, in your, I won't, in your I won't say Roll okay. Tide. Roll or how many championships or, you know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the Alabama fans, we can be pretty aggressive. But uh, it, it's a great question. And I, I, I think process management is so important. I, I like to use this saying, you know, we never have time to do it right, but we always have time to do it over. And that, that statement is probably truer than a lot of us would like to admit. So, so the advice I always give is I, I think you have to fix the day-to-day issues. You know, if, if you're, you walk in and your sinks, you know, there's water running all over the ground, you have to, you obviously have to get, call a plumber in and take care of it. But the bigger question is, you know, who's checking the bathrooms? When did this happen? You know, do I have a process for, you know, somebody checking the bathrooms? All, all those different things to go into a simple process. But, to, to me, you have to address the issue, but you have to constantly work at making sure you understand and really fix your processes. And that's how, to me, I think you take an organization really to the next level. I run in sometimes to a little bit of frustration, I might I might add, in that uh, somebody will I'll say, do we understand this? Does everybody understand this? Yes, we do. Good. Is it in writing? No, but we all understand, which immediately I, I probably roll my eyes and I probably shouldn't. And I go, look, if we all understand it, then writing it down should be really easy. There shouldn't be any question. But inevitably, when you write things down, somebody may have the potential to go, oh, no, that's that's not exactly what. I mean, because this whole game of, you know, if you got six, eight, 12 people that think they all understand it, that process management of writing down key processes of these are the steps, right? We all agree on this is really vital. How do you get people that think, oh, it's all up here. We got it. Do you just at some point say, look, I don't believe it's there until you have it in writing or what would you recommend on that? To to me, I I think uh, you have some things that definitely need to be in writing, especially like policy procedures, uh, processes like like yeah. you mentioned T- to me the best way to be able to do that is, is you get the team to understand and actually be part of the equation to fix the process mm-hmm. and, and what I mean by that I, I use an example again from from the book about uh, our performance reports how it went through like 50 people it took like three months to get a simple performance report signed and so so we realized that that was a bad process so what we ended up doing is put a team together and fix that process and that team would have been the first one to tell you that hey we want to document exactly how we want this to operate so i think getting your team involved in Mm -hmm. fixing the process uh, will help you know buy in it'll buy support and then i think they'll be very actually they'll probably want to write it down even more than the boss gotcha integrity and honesty both are so important how do you feel those two are different in their definition or in their implementation in people that you see in an organization integrity and honesty well, to, to me, honesty, I, I think, is like interaction. It's, it's somebody you know asking you a question, you being truthful, you know, not telling lies, things like that. To me, integrity, it's a little deeper. Honesty is, to me, is part of integrity, and to me, integrity runs deeper. And what I mean by that, integrity is is what you do when no one's around or you don't think anyone's watching, or maybe no one will find out. To me, integrity, it's, it's much deeper. Uh, it, it's that 
feeling or belief system that you have that says you want to do what's right, regardless if anyone will know or ever find out? I think maybe that's why sometimes you probably run into, I certainly have, occasionally somebody will let you down because you you really have put the trust and faith in them to complete something, and then you find out that that maybe that either one they didn't or worse, that they weren't working on it at all or they were skirting the responsibility and you find out from others and and that's a that's a frustrating thing isn't it? it's hard to build back that that trust in somebody when they when they let when you do find out something that you didn't think you were going to have to check on right it, that that's really tough and i i use it like, i think of that like a bank account you know you can put a, a hundred good th- hundred dollars to say a dollar for every good activity you know you can put that in the bank and then one bad situation like that lack of honesty, integrity, not doing what you were asked to do, or for, for whatever reason, it, it, it just drains that bank account a, a, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just so hard to build that back up. And, and again, it's, it's, it's a great point. I talk a lot about in, in the book about the importance of integrity and honesty and service above self and just different situations like that. Mm-hmm. I love your focus on your adaptive focus on being resilient. Why is that? And how is that important? I, I think uh, as really as a, a country, I think as, as people, we're starting to learn that part of life, you're going to have challenges. Everybody has challenges. And I, I think for a long time, we really worked hard to try to prevent everything from happening to individuals. And I think we've kind of become aware that that's not always possible. And so to, to me, we've made a great transition to say, it, let's be resilient uh, things are going to happen. You're going to have bad situations in your life. You're going to have, you know, people pass away. You're going to have bad situations, but it's not necessarily always avoiding them because you probably can't, but it's how you react to those situations that really make a difference. It's about being resilient and asking for help. General Baker, you mentor, consult, coach many people. Uh, what does mentoring look like to you? I think mentoring, the the way I look at it, it, it's providing help and assistance to someone to really to take them to the next level in their professional career or in their life. And and I like to mentor people with a vision. And what I mean by that, I, I like to know where this individual is trying to go. And I make a point again about like having somebody sit down and write down uh, their goals for their job, their goals for their life, their goals for their family. Because once you kind of know what they're wanting to do, I think it's easier to help mentor them. Because they invariably will ask questions about, you know, well, should they take this job? Should they have another child? Whatever the question is, well, you, you got to kind of know what their ultimate life plan is. I've been talking over the last two weeks. This is the second of two two lectures uh, or two podcast lectures with uh, General H. Brent Baker, retired two-star general who wrote a tremendous book on leadership orders from the general, leadership advice from a two-star general. Uh, this is part of our leadership series on As I See It. I hope you've enjoyed this. General Baker, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, listening to you, learning from you uh, in in these podcasts, as well as in your lecture at the strategic retreat that we had, I want to thank you very much. Thank for you so much. Us. This has really been wonderful. And I, I hope that your audience really gained some, some knowledge from this. As I mentioned earlier, I'm, I've really tried to live my life as a student of leadership, and I'm hoping we're doing the same thing for your listeners. I think, I think we are. And just for the listeners, once again, if you want to order General Baker's book, and I would highly recommend it, uh, you can get that on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble, which is bn.com. Uh, you can get it from the publisher, xlibris.com. That's if you want to order the book. 
orders from the general, leadership advice from a two-star general, H. Brent Baker. If you want to contact General Baker, it's he has a website uh, in case you want to have some mentoring, some services, uh, consulting, and I would highly recommend it no matter where you are, what position you are currently in. It's aspiring to be a student of leadership or aspiring to that next level, helping you get prepared for that. His uh, website is hbrentbakersr.com. That's hbrentbakersr.com. That SR stands for senior. And then you can email him directly. Very accessible. And this is slightly different than the website, but close. So get your pencils ready or your pens. And that is hbrent.baker at gmail.com. I encourage you to contact General Baker. I've really enjoyed our time together. Join me next week for another in our series on, the, on leadership uh, as we discuss with area leaders how they have approached their career and give advice to you as a business owner or as a person because leadership is not just what you do at work. It's how you live your life and how you how you handle things within your family also. So thanks a lot for joining me this week. Join me next week on the next edition of As I See It and get your eyes checked. It's a simple thing and can diagnose a lot of general systemic eye health problems. We, we, our job is to protect, correct, and enhance eye care. And the first step in protection is making sure that you have a comprehensive eye health and vision check, even though you don't have any symptoms, with your optometrist or ophthalmologist. That's my leadership quote for today. Get your eyes checked. This is Dr. Jeff Kegris. 